Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all having a wonderful week. I am really happy today because I have a guest on that I had on a couple of years ago, and I've been really looking forward to being back in the studio with Dr. Christina Vaughn, and she is an associate professor and also the director of the Division of Neuropalliative Care at University of Colorado Hospital. Welcome, Christina. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Oh, I'm so glad to have you back. It's been a couple of years, and we had a great yeah. discussion last time you were on, talking a little bit about hospice and some other areas of, uh, you know, neurocognitive issues that people have and various types of dementias, but it's been a while since I've had you back, and you've had some changes in your role at UCH over the last couple of years. Yeah, I have. It's Time flies, you know. <laughs> so when we talked a few years ago, uh, you I think you were in the neuropalliative area anyway. But did you move right. positions a little bit? What, what are you doing now? Yes. Um, when we met the first time, it was pretty early on in my time at the university, and I had been recruited by my predecessor, Dr. Kluger, to join him in this division of neuropalliative care, and then he relocated since then, and that gave me the opportunity to take on the role as director of the division of neuropalliative care within the Department of Neurology, and then I had a promotion and became associate professor also along the way, which was nice. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I, thanks. I'm also lucky enough to get to spend inpatient time 10, week, 10 weeks a year in the hospital on the inpatient palliative care service. And that's something I added on between then and now, too. Well, you've been really busy. So while we're talking about that, can you explain to my listeners what palliative care is? Sure. I'm happy to, because I think a lot of people either haven't heard about it, or if they have, they might misunderstand what it is. So palliative care is a medical specialty. It's kind of newer, you know, compared to things like neurology or cardiology. It's newer. And palliative care is a medical specialty that focuses on trying to relieve all sorts of suffering that people experience with chronic illness, illness really of any kind. And by that, I mean we focus on trying to improve quality of life with the help of a team. So it's certainly not just me. I'm part of a team which would include, for example, a, a social worker, a chaplain, a physician assistant, a nurse, sometimes even others, music therapists. Um, and the goal is to focus on several things. One is symptom management, certainly, of, of the disease, the condition, but also to focus on psychosocial issues, and that's where we can bring in a social worker to help with resources in the community, which is often how um, we get to work with folks like you um, and helping with practical issues, helping with spiritual well-being. That's where we bring in our spiritual counselor or chaplain. Because sometimes people have really tough existential um, 
suffering, sources of suffering, and we want to try and help with that. And then lastly, we help focus on future, thinking about the what-ifs, thinking about advanced care planning, making sure people have documents in order for health care if suddenly they got really sick and needed to figure out where to go from there. And so those are examples of areas that we focus on with the team in the palliative care approach. I just want to say that palliative care is not the same thing as hospice because hospice is also focusing on quality of life with the team, but it's focused exclusively on people that are, in fact, at the end of life, thought to have six months or less of uh, prognosis, whereas palliative care is available to anyone at any stage along their condition, you know, along their disease trajectory. So I have a question for you then. As you have talked about your team and your team approach, that's a very mm-hmm. different viewpoint than many people may have experienced, especially especially seniors, you know, throughout their mm-hmm. life when they have gone to a general practitioner and they, they go in and they talk to the doc and they get a few questions answered and then they're out the door. That team approach is a, is a new way of looking at this. And, you know, I just want to delve a little bit deeper into the benefits of having the team approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the kind of team I'm talking about is is unique, too, because sometimes patients will come to a clinic and have exposure to some team members like rehab therapists, physical occupational speech therapy, and other sorts of clinics. But our team approach, you know, to include a social worker and a spiritual care counselor, are, that's unique in that we, we recognize that there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of different types of suffering when people are living with chronic neurologic conditions or brain-related diseases. And so I certainly don't have the expertise to manage, um, you know, existential sources of suffering. I can try, but I really, I, you know, I, I know where my strengths and weaknesses are. So that's where someone like our chaplain, who is a medical chaplain, who only sees folks who are dealing with, with chronic illness, um, can be so helpful just talking about coping and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then the practical side of things, you know, led up by the social worker, she can talk about, you know, issues like transportation or how to get uh, a meal delivery service or connections to support groups and programming and things like this. And, you know, usually physicians or medical providers don't have that knowledge because that's outside of our skill set. You know, mm-hmm. we're focused on a lot of times on symptoms and other things, tests. Um, so to work with a team creates a more robust way of trying to address patients and families' needs um, because it's not just anchored in the medical. It's all a big picture. So, yeah, the you know, in the big picture, we look at, you know, families who have not maybe uh, put their legal work in order or they're, you know, not thinking about making their home safer. And and we want to, you know, try to always think about the person still being with us and not a situation of just what they have lost, which is what families generally are looking at and seeing. And the person who has the diagnosis wants people to know they're still there. So we've got to find a way to, to bridge that gap. And 
And also, you know, just mm-hmm. the fact that they will ask, you know, uh, why me? Why did this happen to me right. from a spiritual standpoint? Right? Mm-hmm. And that's where Ryan would Absolutely. come in to be able maybe to help guide them through that loss of faith. When we have a time like this. So mm-hmm. I absolutely see why you say, you know, sometimes this is out mm-hmm. of my realm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll say to, to your point, we like to see people as early as possible in the disease trajectory. You know, even at the time of diagnosis would be a good time. You know, I it bothers me when people say I'm not ready for palliative care. I feel like, why? Who wouldn't be ready for palliative care? It's really just meant to be additional support coming alongside the main neurology team or other doctors. Um, but I love to recognize when I first meet people, especially early on, that we're not in a crisis. You know, right now we're not in a crisis, and our hope is to never be in one. And we want to do whatever we can to prevent a crisis and have everything in line now up front. And have a plan for the what if, you know, what if, God forbid, my spouse got COVID, what do I do? What if, you know, there was a stroke or some sort of event that happened, what would we have in place? To kind of just walk through those, not to dwell on them, but just to have a plan. I can't tell you how often people feel this sense of relief after talking through some of these possibilities, just to know we've got a plan and then we don't necessarily have to revisit it again. You know, it's done. Mm-hmm. And I think seeing people as early as possible also lets us hear their voice, you know, the voice of someone who might be later developing worsening memory changes. If we can hear their story and what's important to them up front, it really helps us down the road with decision making. You know, and you make a great point. I think one of the things that happens is when I talk to families, they will say, you know, the doctor talks to my wife. They talk to my daughter Mm. or son. And you're changing that to really try to find out what's going on in the mind of a person from Mm -hmm. an emotional standpoint, not just a physical or physiological Mm -hmm. standpoint, but what's going on in the mind of that person right now. It's just a, a really different approach. I love that. Thanks. I mean, it's it's gratifying for us, too, because what we're trying to do is see who this person is, you know, and not define them by their illness, their, whatever it is, Alzheimer's or any other form of dementia, Parkinson's. We don't want to see them as this patient with this disease. We want to see them as, you know, this mother of five who did this and that and traveled and, you know, loves to bake or whatever it is. We want to be able to see them as that person. And we write our notes in the chart that way, too. Starting by saying, this is a, you know, whatever, however they identify themselves, and then get into the medical secondarily. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to bring in our collaboration. And we're, I want to sure. talk a little bit later about some of the more specific um, areas that you work with in terms of Lewy body and such, okay? But um, even sure. even from my standpoint, every time I send a note out that I'm teaching a class on behalf of the neurology department at UCH, I always say thank you for supporting my work because I really mean that. But I have really been touched and humbled by uh, the fact that that I provide in-home assessments and I will meet a family where they are in their home. And mm-hmm. I uh, have been around long enough and seen enough of the disease standpoint to know where someone is in the stages. 
sometimes, you know, um, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's or Lewy body or even frontal temporal, even though that's sometimes a more of a slow burn. But um, what I mm-hmm. when I do that, I typically will write the family a very comprehensive report and then I send it to you. And I'm really mm-hmm. I'm really excited that it matters to you because I'm trying to give you a glimpse into the home, how they actually mm-hmm. live, you know, right. and, and some of the real struggles. You know, we've seen everything from firearms in a home to someone still driving to, you know, all the things that, that you can't always help with. And generally, families mm-hmm. think you can in terms of a pill or a medication. Here's a symptom right. we can't deal with. Let's call the doctor, and what can we give them that can calm them down through this process? And I, uh, I, I focus very heavily on the person themselves. I talk to them and try to understand what they still need and what their, mm-hmm. what their chapter next is going to look like. Because everybody right. everybody has this this page, this chapter that they're turning. And oftentimes I find that the family uh, has a different viewpoint of the disease than the person does. And bringing them mm. together isn't always easy. That's that's what I'm trying to do is bring them together and let them see each other's side. And I'm wondering how mm-hmm. your palliative care, can impact that. Do you not only talk to the person, but their family? Is it more of a family approach, would you say? Yes, and that's that's the goal. I love it when we can have as many family members or whoever's in their chosen family, for example, whoever's closest to them, to be involved in our visits. And, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was the ability to use telehealth more often, and sometimes that allowed us to have more participants in our visits because, you know, somebody might be sitting in their living room with their family right there with them, and they may not have come to the actual in-person visit. So as many folks as as want to join and can join, we love that because we're trying to, we realize, as I think you said earlier, these conditions, these brain diseases affect everyone close to the person with the diagnosis. It's not a one-person disease. It affects everyone, um, particularly families. And so to have everyone present in a visit is is really fruitful. And, and really, I make a point to ask the care partner or whoever's closest how they're doing during our visits. And sometimes they act surprised that I would even ask. <laughs> right. um, but we, you know, we definitely want to include them and try and care for them too, because Burnout is always such a risk for care partners and family members, and we want to prevent that. Again, trying to prevent crises. Mm-hmm. We don't want it to be like the frog in boiling water where a family member is caring for their loved one, and suddenly they feel like the pot of, bo- the, of water is boiling and wondering, how did we get here? That's right. the last thing we want. That's what we want to prevent. Right. Well, I want to tell you from a personal standpoint, I always appreciate it when uh, I have a family that you you or one of the other doctors has referred to me and i'm able to work with that family and help with medicaid or place someone or get those keys taken away or remove the guns or whatever it is that's ailing everyone and then give that information back to you and that's that yeah. is super helpful 
for me, just to feel mm-hmm. like the family feels like there's a connection because I always say, may I share this with Dr. Vaughn? Can I share this report mm-hmm. with Dr. Vaughn? I never do it if they say no. And I've never had anybody say no. But I just feel like that I hope that that extension, um, it's it's fun for me. I, I feel like I'm a part of your team even if I'm a little bit removed. <laughs> I was just going to say that actually. <laughs> Yeah, you know it. It, it really I, that helps. One of the things that um, I want to ask you about is when we get to the end. When it's not necessarily the end of life, but when someone is ready to move their person into a community, uh-huh. the pain for the the emotional pain for the family member who is not sick is enormous. Yeah. It's enormous, mm-hmm. and it it can manifest itself into physical pain. I've seen right. I've seen family members who have been hospitalized for asthma or anxiety or you know whatever it is. And my fear is always that we might lose the actual care partner before we lose the person with the diagnosis, because some, right. that happens right. sometimes. So that's why I'm really intrigued by the care approach of your team, because it's uh, it's just amazing when you're treating the whole family. And th- that's where I really have, I think, some of my biggest issues is, is trying to help that person who's made that vow that they'll never put their loved one in mm-hmm. a nursing home. And they mm-hmm. they just can't live with themselves letting someone else take over the care. And I, right. uh, I, one of the biggest things that I've struggled with of late is um, helping people to understand that this isn't their fault and that that scope of care has become such right. that it's endangering everyone's well-being. Right. You know, and right. we, we worked on a few of those together <laughs> recently. <laughs> and it's just... Yes, it, it's, as recently as yesterday. Right. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, I, I love that if, what I tell my families that control what they can control. Don't worry about what they mm-hmm. cannot control. And I think mm-hmm. that I think that that statement kind of um, fits what you're doing as well, right? Mm-hmm. It does. And you know, just to add to what you're saying about our collaboration, you know, it does feel often like you're part of our team. And I wish you were officially, <laughs> but unofficial member of our team, I guess. Right. But um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> As much as we try to hear the story and explore what life was like before, whatever the diagnosis is, dementia or so forth, um, and try and really get a comprehensive understanding of who the person and family, who they are, mm-hmm. um, what we're missing is the in-home piece. You know, it's it's really something different to be able to see someone in their own environment and um, to see them there. And that's where you come in. I mean, to be able to do home visits and report back and add to the information we've already gotten is, is very rich information that's extremely helpful. And, you know, I wish wish that was part of our typical practice where we'd say, okay, we've got, we'll schedule our home visit next time. You know, that would be lovely. Right. It's not something we can do. Uh, well, I appreciate that because it, it really matters to me. I want families to feel like they're supported and that they're understood. Mm-hmm. And that we have compassion for the situation they're in. But I also don't yeah. want them to rest on their laurels. I want them to always be moving forward and always be yeah. doing, you know, the most positive things that they can. I think that represents palliative care 
pretty well, too, because palliative mm-hmm. care is all about let's move forward and see how we can make the situation yeah. better. I don't think people. You got it. I don't think people always understand that. You got it. That's exactly right. It's actually about living. You know, people mm-hmm. forget that it's about living, which is a forward-moving process. Mm-hmm. So it is about you know what are we hoping for and how can we achieve that? What's possible? When you went to medical school and you decided what specialty you were going to focus on, did you ever think it was going to evolve to this? You know, yes and no. I didn't go to medical school right away. I took a very scenic route. And the reason I decided to go to medical school was specifically so that I could be a neurologist focusing on Parkinson's disease initially, Mm -hmm. just due to family health issues. And so Having that as an inspiration, um, I didn't really know what direction that would take, and I certainly hadn't heard of palliative care um, at that point in medical school, or actually before medical school. Um, But luckily, earlier on in my training as an intern in um, neurology, my first year of residency, I had the benefit of having an elective in palliative medicine, so I got exposure to it quite early, and I was hooked. It was always on my mind from that point forward. Um, And I even thought about deviating my plan, my original plan, to just focus on palliative care. Um, But again, in keeping with my scenic route previously, I continued to have a scenic route. And (laughs) after training in neurology and so on, I then circled back and got more training in palliative care later in my career. Well, I really, I I just, for me, it feels like a a pretty new approach over the last, I would say, five years being new Mm -hmm. (laughs) of something that Mm -hmm. I was introduced to. I'm surprised how many people don't know that it's available. Mm -hmm. And how do Yeah, unfortunately, it's not widely available, like Mm -hmm. in the country, that is. Mm -hmm. You don't think it is? I think specific neuro neurologists focused on palliative care is becoming more popular for sure, but it's still pretty unheard of in most places around the country. We're lucky here um, that this hybrid was created, um, and that's what brought me here. Um, And I'm so glad. (laughs) We're going to take a short (laughs) break. We'll be right back, and we'll finish our conversation with Dr. Christina Vaughn. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. 
Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, we're back, and I'm with Dr. Christina Vaughn, and she is the Director of the Division of Neuropalliative Care at the University of Colorado Hospital, and she's also Associate Professor in the same area. Christina, it's great to have you on the phone today because it's it's been a nice conversation about palliative care and how it's changing the scope of the way neurologists work with families, which has been mm. so needed, <laughs> so needed. You know, specifically, you said you had started with Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. What what drew you to Parkinson's disease? Well, Parkinson's uh, has been in my family since I was born. My grandmother had young onset Parkinson's, and then my father later had young onset Parkinson's. So it was just very familiar to me, and then that prompted me to develop a curiosity about the brain. And then as a high school going into college student, I got wind of this author called uh, Dr. Oliver Sacks, who was writing some books describing really interesting neurologic cases, and I got kind of hooked there, and I just, it went from there. You know, Dr. Oliver Sacks was the person who produced and he worked with the, uh, it, it ended up on YouTube, but it was a documentary on music therapy, and it was with Henry. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. I know he had a wonderful... I think he wrote a book on it as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, I would, he, he I would really love to read that. wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, I rem- and I think he passed away in the last year or two, but it, what great yep. work he did with music therapy, which you mentioned earlier, by the way, as part of mm-hmm. uh, your, your sort of team approach. And I um, mm-hmm. just did a show last week on music therapy and, and the beauty of mm-hmm. having trained people coming in and working with you uh, on your genre of music and ways to have that trigger various emotions in your brain. I just think your palliative approach is wonderful. And as we were just talking about Parkinson's, how do you Mm -hmm. think that that uh, plays in the Parkinson's world? I feel like, and the reason why I ask this, I feel like Parkinson's is maybe one of the neurological diseases that maybe we have the most control over from the person with the diagnosis, like how much exercise they do could actually help them mm-hmm. with their tremors and, you know, so on and so forth. And maybe even understanding. I mentioned to you a week ago or so that I feel like the people with Parkinson's who have um, any psychosis, uh, hallucinations for my listeners out there, uh, sometimes I can find that that goes back to something in their history. That, that they're bringing up in their mm-hmm. mind that's manifesting now in a in a vision. You know, so I, I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, I think Parkinson's really lends itself to the palliative care approach um, because it has such a broad impact on the individual living with it and certainly on their family. Um, if you think about it like an iceberg, you know, where there's this tip of the iceberg sticking up out of the water and this huge iceberg underneath that you don't see, Parkinson's is usually called a movement disorder because people can develop walking problems, balance problems, tremor, slowness. Um, But that's just what you see. There is so much more underneath the surface that you don't necessarily see. Things like depression and apathy, which is often under-recognized in Parkinson's as its own symptom, which really interferes with people participating in things. But you're right. There are all sorts of programs 
and um, support groups and certain types of exercise classes. Boxing, for example, has gotten a lot of traction in the Parkinson's world. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot that can be done um, on a lifestyle level to help with management of Parkinson's. Um, but I really think the best way to manage Parkinson's is with a team, you know, a group, a medical team that's going to help with all of the seen and unseen struggles with Parkinson's. There's so much to it. Absolutely. And I I really didn't think about the apathy piece. I'm going to pay more attention to that when I'm working with my Parkinson's folks. I, for the most part, find them willing to put their life into more of a routine where it's it's mm-hmm. set so that they, you know, have a little bit of rest time, but then they do some yoga or chai tea or uh, mm-hmm. sit down and listen to a podcast for a little bit and then go for a walk or, you know, when mm-hmm. I'm working with families in their homes, uh, I try to help them create a... a um, calendar of events uh, that leaves a little bit of time for them to to sort of sit and have some quiet time, but about every hour putting something else in. And I find that to be helpful. I think sometimes in the folks who have the tremors, it's a little bit harder of a sell. Mm-hmm. I think the mm-hmm. I think the people mm-hmm. that have more of the stiffness, the bradykinesia, those types of things, I think they're more willing to try to do something to to get their bodies to move a little bit better for them. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think when mm-hmm. when we can try to to talk to them on all these different levels, I hope that that creates some sort of comfort and peace for them to see a path Mm -hmm. that they could possibly go down and take a couple of turns here or there and try some different therapies or alternative Mm -hmm. ways of living to try to better their existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much anchored in wellness. Um, But the apathy piece is, is definitely one worth keeping in mind because sometimes it frustrates families more than the person living with the Parkinson's because the person with the Parkinson's may not recognize it. In fact, probably doesn't recognize that oh, they have less get up and go or motivation. Good point. And then the spouse or whoever's in the family might get frustrated and say, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z that you should be doing for your Parkinson's? And not their fault. You know, they're not lazy. It, it can be apathy. And apathy doesn't even have to exist with depression. It can exist alone, separate. From mm-hmm. depression, so it's really worth thinking about for all of us when we're when we're dealing with Parkinson's because that can interfere with a lot of the um, activities that are so helpful. Oh, it sure can. And you know, you have told me before that uh, Louis body is also one of your specialties, and that's a yeah. whole nother. That's a whole nother realm. Wow, I mean that disease. Yeah. quite frankly, blows my mind with the with the way that it manifests over time. And I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but what I have seen is more behavior issues sometimes before mm-hmm. the person has memory loss. And I, mm-hmm. I find that to be yeah. interesting. And yet it's not per se necessarily related to Alzheimer's as much as it is Parkinson's disease, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a little hard to explain yeah, it, sometimes. It, it, it can be, yeah. I think usually people make sense of it after the fact. They look back, you know, once they've gotten the diagnosis of, in this case, Lewy body disease, can, they and the family can look back and say, oh, 
these isolated events that occurred, perhaps some behavioral changes or isolated episodes of getting lost or, or other things that just weren't well explained before mm-hmm. now make more sense. Right. So I think, yeah, after the fact, after the diagnosis, it, it becomes more clear. But Lewy body disease is often um, misdiagnosed um, mm-hmm. as sometimes just plain old Parkinson's disease or as Alzheimer's or another kind of dementia. And then sometimes it takes a little bit of time to, to revise and get the proper diagnosis because time helps clarify these things. What are you looking for? What are you looking for with Lewy body? In Lewy body disease? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, commonly we're looking for some cognitive changes, thinking and memory problems, particularly things like trouble with decision-making, trouble with multitasking. That's different, you know, that's new mm-hmm. for that person. And then um, perhaps some hallucinations or even illusions. Illusions are where you look at something that is there and misinterpret it as something else, you know, where a bedpost becomes a tree or a mailbox is a person. And having more and more of that. And then maybe seeing some visual hallucinations. Most commonly are um, small animals, small people, sometimes insects. Um, And, you know, they're often benign, meaning that they're not scary, Mm -hmm. but they're not real. However, they seem extremely real to the person. And sometimes they can't be talked out of it. So evidence of some hallucinations or illusions early on. And then a mild degree of Parkinsonism, meaning mild symptoms of perhaps less facial expression, overall slowness, a change in walking that could look like shuffling or smaller, shorter steps, or walking slower, less arm swing, Mm -hmm. a handwriting change where handwriting has become small, almost microscopic. It's called micrographia. Um, And plus or minus tremor does not have to include a tremor, but sometimes it does. So those are features you'd see okay. as, as sort of a mild Parkinson's within the diagnosis of Lewy body disease. And so is it difficult for you to be able to tell right off the bat if someone has Parkinson's or Lewy body? This seems hard. It depends. It can be hard for sure. Um, thankfully, at the university, I have colleagues who are part of the Lewy Body Center of Excellence. And um, my colleagues, Dr. Pellick and Holden, are in that center. So if ever there's any question, I send folks for another opinion to that group if I'm seeing them first. Uh, or alternatively, they will send us patients and they've already well characterized them. But um, I think the, the most powerful tool we have is time. Being able to see an individual several times um, over the course of several months allows us to see, you know, several time points and see what's changing, perhaps what the slope of change is in between visits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we see someone in clinic, it's just a snapshot in time. And a lot of times people rise to the occasion and look better during a visit than they would look at home and and the family gets frustrated saying they don't look this good at home. So to see them multiple times might allow us to get a better sense of what things are really like. Um, So time is the most helpful, in my opinion, in clarifying these diagnoses. But there are clinical criteria that we use um, to make the diagnoses, and, in, in, you know, it's never definitive 100% mm-hmm. because we can't take a biopsy, you know, someone's brain and, and be able to diagnose it. But right. we can say with, with a good amount of certainty, either possible or probable Parkinson's disease or Lewy body disease based on 
you know, using these clinical guidelines, criteria, and several time points. And all that really just brings it together. And that's, it's really Mm -hmm. good because years ago, you didn't have that luxury. Doctors didn't have that luxury. They might not have recognized Lewy body on its own or Parkinson's on its own or just thought a person with tremors or stiffness or, you know, the micrographia, whatever it was, was just Parkinson's Mm -hmm. without being able to know know the Lewy body piece. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a spectrum because what's going on in the brain in Lewy body disease, it's the same pathology that's going on in Parkinson's disease distributed differently in the brain. And if somebody's had Parkinson's disease for a really long time, they often end up looking as someone who has Lewy body disease. There's some overlap there. Interesting. I have a question for you. I see people Mm. that, that walk leaning to the left. They're leaning to the Mm. left. Does it fall into any of those categories when they're in the late stage? Yes. Yeah. So a lot of times people can develop a postural lean like you just described. It can Mm -hmm. be to the left or to the right. Sometimes it's in the direction of which side of their body is more affected by the Parkinsonism. Okay. But it's actually called Pisa syndrome, like the leaning tower of Pisa. Right. I mean, that's the formal name for it. Okay. And um, it might be a form of dystonia um, in Parkinson's, which is a sustained muscle tightness, um, mm-hmm. or just a, just a feature that isn't quite characterized as dystonia. Nonetheless, it can be common in people that have had long-standing Parkinson's disease. It can also be common in people that have an atypical form called multiple system atrophy or MSA. Okay. That's another diagnosis that's more likely even to have a postural problem where someone's leaning and often also leaning forward, you know, like a right. like a forward flexion with a mm-hmm. tilt to the side. Interesting. Yeah. I see that a lot, especially in mm-hmm. care communities that are mem- that have memory units. You know, I've seen yeah. that a lot, and I've always wondered: is that is it specific to one disease or another? So it it can possibly be something on its own, like you were just saying. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's usually part of Parkinson's, advanced Parkinson's, or multiple system atrophy are the most common where that would occur. There are so many of these diseases and syndromes. <laughs> that I there find, really are, and more than we realize. And I just, it amazes me that you're able to work within all of these various diseases and syndromes, like you mentioned uh, Victoria Pellick, and I've been working with her PCA group that I just learned about a year Mm -hmm. ago. I didn't even know this Mm -hmm. syndrome existed. So Mm -hmm. I I just find it fascinating. Does it ever become overwhelming, honestly? For us, uh, on the provider side? Yes. It can. It can. Because as you know, it's, it can be really heavy. You know, you're witnessing a lot of suffering, but you're trying to walk the journey with families and patients. And so, absolutely, I think we all need to be conscious of self-care and step away from time to time and just take a breather. You know, I have to absolutely. tell you, uh, it's been, I, I think, a year ago now that um, uh, Benzie Kluger, Dr. Kluger, had a palliative care class 
and several uh, neurologists came. There was about 20 of them, and it was on a Saturday, an all-day affair, and he invited me to come to it. (laughs) And I bring this Mm -hmm. up because of your palliative care approach. And as they were talking, he said, I think sometimes we as neurologists in in these fields that we're talking about today, uh, we have a 100% failure rate. And he said, I'm trying to change this trajectory for the palliative care to to not have that 100% failure rate, to be able to walk on the journey with people. And one of the other neurologists asked me, and I said, I actually feel like I have a 100% success rate because I can help people where they are, and I'm trying to help yeah. them to live well, like you said earlier, to live well mm-hmm. and and be resilient, overcome those obstacles and adversity to find a positive outcome. And it just makes my mm-hmm. heart so full when you speak with so much hope and so much promise in being able to help families where they are. That So Benzie's, mm-hmm. Benzie's statement now I feel is null and void. I feel like it's it's come full circle yeah. where where that's not the case anymore. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think so. And and I think by their nature, neurologists have always been in some ways palliative care docs because once we diagnose something, unfortunately, we don't cure many things at this stage and we walk the walk with patients. Mm-hmm. What would happen is that oftentimes if somebody lives towards the end of life and then switched care to hospice, then we wouldn't know what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to stay involved from the time of diagnosis all the way to the end and really be a stable presence, you know, who really knows them well. And, and you know, I don't want to surrender care to a hospice <laughs> team at the end of life. Mm-hmm. I want to share um, because I think we still have something to offer, not just the long-term relationship, but advice about medications and so on. So I think you're right. We've moved towards staying involved longer And there's an increased awareness in neurology to focus on things beyond just tests and medicines and prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a work in progress, but I think we're ahead of the game in Colorado. Oh, I think so, too. And, you know, from my standpoint, I try to tell families to be open and honest and real, not only with each other, Mm -hmm. but with you, their neurologist, Mm -hmm. and with your team uh, letting them know what you're feeling so so often, so many times uh, in the past, people would be afraid to talk about Alzheimer's, Lewy body, Parkinson's on any level, afraid to tell their family members, afraid mm-hmm. to talk about it because they're going to lose their job or what have it, what have you. And mm-hmm. I, I really try hard to destigmatize all of that. And to just have those open yeah. conversations. And when you can do that, I think that your journey will be easier. I'll tell you one success story that was personal. My sister, Judy, Mm. was diagnosed a year ago, August, with uh, early stage Alzheimer's. And and she she just turned 64 now. She was 63 at the time. But she was in a car accident, two in the same year, and actually called me on the phone and said, I don't think I want to drive anymore. And I don't think she would have come to that conclusion 
had we not have had full support and open lines of communication, you can tell me how you're feeling. You can really mm-hmm. um, tell me when you've had a bad day. You can tell me when you've forgotten something, when you've left the stove on, and I won't judge you. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so she was able to tell me that she didn't want to drive anymore. And there were other people back uh, in her area that were saying, well, are you sure about that? She said, I don't mind being Miss Daisy. You know, I'll just hitch a ride with somebody. Let me know when you're going to the store. I think using that same story, that same that same piece there, it, it translates to what you're doing, Christina, in that if people can be more open and honest, if they can come mm-hmm. in and, and have a conversation with you on telehealth or in person and let and, and have the uh, peace of mind to be able to say, I could not find my way home the other day and not have anybody sitting in mm-hmm. judgment where you're just trying to help families together mm-hmm. and even the care partner saying, I think sometimes I'm hovering over them or I'm seeing only what they've lost. If we could get to a place where when they come and visit you and your team, they would have better mm-hmm. conversations with you like that. I think mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. we're all going to be served better on these journeys. It does not have to be difficult anymore. I agree. And, you know, two things to add to that. One is that on our side, on the medical side, We always need to be careful and make sure we ask people what they want to know in in the spirit of honesty and transparency, because sometimes people don't want to know about what lies ahead or prognosis. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a a tool in palliative care called Ask, Tell, Ask, where we ask, you know, do you want to know about what a possible lifespan would look like? And then if they say yes, then you tell them. And then after that, ask again, you know, is that that surprise you? How does that land with you? And I think from the side of the patient and family, certainly, you know, being honest and forthright is what we're hoping for. But on our side, too, we also need to not make assumptions about what they want us to talk about and really ask permission first. And that's something I learned in my palliative care training that I just right. hadn't really thought about before. Right. And I think the other thing that just made me think of when you were talking about your sister, um, is that, you know, again, unless we ask, it's hard for us on the medical side to really understand the lived experience, particularly with someone who has an early onset of a dementia. Mm -hmm. And so I'm currently working on a small research project looking to exploring what the unique palliative care needs are of patients and families who are living with early onset dementia because it's its own situation. You know, people Mm -hmm. may not have planned to stop working or stop driving at such an early age. Um, They may still have kids in the home. And for us to understand better what their needs are and what their experience is like, I think is really important Um, because I don't want to claim to be an expert on knowing those things because I'm not. And until we explore it formally, we're just not going to know how best to serve these folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think I think it's important for us to always be asking these questions. I agree. And just to make things a little more complicated, you also do focus on people with Alzheimer's. Is there anything new in that realm that I can tell my listeners today? Yes. Actually, just today, um, I learned within our department that two of our neurocognitive specialists who also do a lot of 
clinical research, doctors Potter and Pressman, received an RO1 grant, which is a really important prestigious grant from the National Institutes of Health. And they are looking at a drug called Sargramostem. It's also called Leukine. And it's a drug that stimulates the immune system. And, and this is the reason they even think to look at this is because they notice and others have noticed that people with rheumatoid arthritis are less likely to get Alzheimer's, or at least there's some sort of lack of association there. So mm-hmm. um, that prompted them to study this drug. And it's it may stimulate immune processes that could protect brain cells um, from toxic proteins. And as we know, it's protein accumulation that contributes to the, to the pathogenesis of, of Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So... It's a phase two study, so it's early on in the different phases of clinical trials, but pretty exciting. Um, and uh, I'm really proud of, of our colleagues in the neurocognitive and neurobehavioral group at UC Health. At the, at the university. That is super exciting. <laughs> well, I have talked at length yeah. about uh, Dr. Huntington Potter's Leukine study, and so that is great news. And maybe we can get him on the mm-hmm. show to tell us about what it, what the chapter next is going to look like for him. But I just want to thank mm-hmm. you for all your hard work and in propelling palliative care to another level. And just taking Thank it to you. a new place where families feel understood, they feel loved, they feel supported, and uh, we couldn't do it without your approach. And like you just said about them, I'm proud of what your group is doing, your team is doing to further this. I really am. Thank you so much. And I really value our partnership. I think we've done some good work together with your help. Well, thank you, and I look forward to having you on again. Last time you were on, I had a minimal amount of listeners. Now I have, and I'm grateful for all of you out there, listeners in all 50 states and 54 countries. So you've you've shared some good light today to people all around the world, and they can start asking, where can I get this kind of care where I live? Well, thank you, Christina, for being on the show. I appreciate it, and I'll see you all next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.